So Isaiah chapter 36, this is also recorded in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, the same historical incident, which the, the psalm that we're going to go to, a lot of scholars think that, that this psalm was written with this particular incident in mind. Uh, it, it doesn't say that at the start of the psalm, it's going to be Psalm 46, but it doesn't, stay, it doesn't say at the start of the psalm exactly when it was written. And there are a few different uh, guesses, but, but this is one uh, distinct possibility. So from Isaiah 36, I want to read uh, verse 1 and then verses 18 to 20. It's 36 and 37 together that describe the historical background. But chapter 36, verse 1 says... In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Verse 18, Sennacherib writes a a letter to the people and he says, Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save this land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? So those are the words of a guy called Sennacherib. Now he was a bad spud. Uh, He was the king of a nation called Assyria which was the global superpower at the time of, uh, of this being written, an incredibly brutal people. Cruelty and barbaric treatment of everyone that they attacked, everyone that they took prisoner. They devised horrendous ways of killing people. And basically, if you saw Sennacherib and his army heading towards your city, you got the checkbook out straight away. You got all the gold and all the silver you could find because you wanted to buy him off. You wanted to pay him some tribute that he might leave you alone and not actually completely take over your city. Now, Isaiah 36 tells us that, uh, that or not Isaiah 36. Yeah, Isaiah 36 one tells us that Assyria have attacked all the fortified cities of Judah. Now, as far as I know, that's about 40 odd cities in Judah. And this guy, Sennacherib, and his army have gone around all of those cities, attacked them one by one, and captured them. Walled cities, fortified cities, guarded by soldiers, and he has taken every single one of them, and he's got a lot of prisoners of war, and there have been a lot of casualties. This threat is an incredible threat. It's a huge threat. It's a threat to the very existence of the people of Judah and Jerusalem at that time. And Sennacherib and his army are now heading for Jerusalem. Now you picture the scene, you picture that maybe you're one of these guys who's a watchman who walks around the walls of the city night and day, looking out into the distance, looking for danger. And you start to see in the distance the dust rising on the horizon. And you start to see in the, in the heat haze and in the blur Uh, a dark mass approaching, and that dark mass that's approaching is Sennacherib's army. On this occasion, 185,000 of them coming against Jerusalem. And you think of the fear that is going to rise up within people when they see that, that this tremendous threat is now coming right to their own doorstep. Um, They came with siege ramps. They had battering rams to try and break down the gates that were in the walls. They had archers to shoot arrows and burning arrows and all sorts of stuff over the walls. They probably had catapults. They had all the the machines of war that existed in those days. And here they were coming in the distance towards Jerusalem. And not only that, but they also came with what you could call psychological warfare. They came with threats Uh, They sent messengers to speak to the leaders of Jerusalem in the hearing of the people. They sent letters of threats and they basically said, as we read earlier, no God has protected his people from this threat of Assyria 
and your God won't be able to protect you either. That's the threat, the psychological warfare that's coming. And they lay siege to the city. Now, the king at that time in Judah is a guy called Hezekiah. He was a good king. And Hezekiah takes this letter that he receives and he does a really good thing. He instinctively brings the letter to the temple. He goes into the presence of God and he lays out the letter in front of God in the temple and he goes to prayer. That's the background. Now, we're going to Psalm 46 with that in the background. 185,000 soldiers around the city, a leader who was brutal and barbaric like no one else in the ancient world at that time, and a people who are in fear because they have seen this thing come, they have seen it take all of the other cities, and they are now seeing it approach their city, and they're in fear. And in the midst of all of that, it looks like somebody wrote a song. And the song is Psalm 46. It's a famous psalm, and there's plenty of people preaching and meditating on Psalm 46 in these days uh, when there is a threat, obviously, coming. And uh, it's a good place to just sit for half an hour and ponder what God says. Um, I heard it described, and I'm using this as the title for today's message, as a song of defiant trust. A song of defiant trust. Let me read Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake, with their surging. Selah. That little word selah that appears in the Psalms, it it basically is an encouragement to stop and think about what you've just read. It's basically, it's just, you know, stop, don't read on, don't rush away, give some thought, chew on that for a while before you read on. Verse four, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that although it was written 3,000 years ago, it is absolutely bang up to date. And I pray, God, that it would encourage your people this morning. Amen. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks to all of you that that have come along. I'm just aware that that there are guys that who are who have been the table for for years and who call this their their sort of spiritual family, their spiritual home. And we also really welcome those who have jumped in and taken some encouragement from the Word of God over the last few weeks. Thank you for the messages you've sent. Uh, it's so good to have you, and I just really hope that, that this encourages you at this time. Verses 2 and 3 talk about a catastrophe on a global scale. Now, even the world wars were not on the scale that, that what we currently face is on. Not every nation on earth was involved in the world wars. 
but every nation on earth, apart from a few exceptionally small nations and one larger nation that is probably telling lies about the fact that no one has been infected, uh, every nation on earth has been affected by what's going on. This is truly global. And the psalmist here writes in verses 2 and 3 using language of cataclysm, using language of seismic upheaval, of global catastrophe, when everything that seemed immovable and unshakable is shaking. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. This is the the most solid and stable thing that the psalmist can imagine other than God. He looks to the mountains and he says the very mountains are falling into the sea. Later on, he talks about nations in uproar and kingdoms falling and that's what we see when we put the news on once or twice a day, not, not too often. But when we put the news on, we are seeing nations in uproar, kingdoms falling. We're seeing things that appear to be unshakable that are absolutely shaking. You know, whenever sailors in the ancient world got off their ship, their boat or whatever, and stepped onto the ground again, they referred to it as terra firma which means earth, solid, solid earth. Um, they, they would have been tossed around and sea for a few days or a few weeks or whatever, but now once again their feet were on solid earth and everything was okay. But in our time and in the time the psalmist writes of, there is no solidity anywhere. The things that we used to trust in are shaking Whenever we read in, in 2 Kings 18 or in Isaiah 36 about this threat that has come, uh, they basically say to God's people, don't go to Egypt for help. We've already conquered Egypt because in the past, God's people had formed alliances with Egypt. And, and the, the, the king of Assyria said, listen, don't bother going to Egypt. We've already conquered Egypt. The things you used to lean on, you cannot lean on them anymore. They have been taken away. And the people of God are troubled. They are disoriented. They are uncertain. There is turbulence all around them and there is turbulence within them. And it's similar to what we're seeing. There is turbulence in our nation, in our communities. There's financial turbulence. There's anxiety. Uh, There are fears over jobs, lots of people with very good jobs and they're starting to be concerned, is my company going to make it? Are are they still going to be there when I go back? There are fears over health for ourselves. There are fears over health for loved ones, uh, for brothers and sisters in Christ, friends and family who are in the the at-risk category. Not only fears for physical health, but there are concerns for mental health. Um, I'm concerned about, about young people who need routine and they need structure and they need lots of positive influences in their lives. And a lot of those things have been pulled away from them. Um, there's so much turbulence going on around us. And uh, uh, an Old Testament scholar called Walter Brueggemann talks about psalms of disorientation and psalms of orientation. He talks about psalms that are written at times when things look bleak and people feel weak and anxious, when the world around us is falling apart, when there is radical change and old certainties are no longer certain. And he says a psalm like Psalm 46 is crucial in a time of dismay and anxiety. God, as we will read in the psalm, is present not only in the good times when nature is kind and the sea is calm and the crops are plentiful and the children are healthy and our well-being is secure and our enemies are subdued. He's not only present in the good times, but he's also present when the mountains shake and the seas roar. So this is a psalm that is, it is designed to orientate the people again when they are disoriented by what's going on around them. And it's very easy to criticize our governments at this stage. I would encourage you not to do that because I believe we're called as followers of God to respect our government and to honor our government. 
as long as they don't stick up golden statues of themselves and ask us to bow down and worship them. But we honor our government and, and, and to, to slabber about them and criticize them is not actually a very Christian thing to do. But when we look at our government, we see disorientation. We see advice from a few weeks ago that changes and it's, it's very easy to point the finger, but who of us would really do any better in this, in this time that we're in? Everything is shaking. But verse 1 says, God is our refuge, he is our strength, and he is our help. And, and, and note the word are, it's possessive there. It's not that he's just some random refuge that we might be able to avail of. He is our refuge. And the word refuge is a place to run to. It's a stronghold. In Lord of the Rings, it's Helm's Deep. It's the place where people run and find strength in times of threat and in times when an enemy has come against them. God is our refuge. And he is our strength. The refuge is almost like an outer thing. It's a, it's a place we go to where we find protection. And the strength is an inner thing. I talked last week about strength in weakness. God's strength comes, rises up within us and replaces the weakness that we feel. And he is also our help. Three things in that verse. Our refuge, our strength, and our help. And I love the, the phrase that comes in there before help. And in my Bible, it says that God is an ever-present help. I remember the first Bible I ever bought myself after I became a Christian. A big old chunky King James Bible. And um, basically, if you dropped it, the earth shook. Big monster of a thing. And in that version, I think it was that version said that God is an abundantly available help. Now, when you go onto WhatsApp and you look at somebody's status, it might say they are available. Um, if you come to an office or a classroom, you might see a notice on the door saying, back in five minutes or unavailable meeting in progress. Um, sometimes the kids come to me and I might be in the middle of writing an email or a message and I can't really communicate on two levels at the same time. So I'll say, you know, just let, let me, can I, can I finish writing this email? I'm communicating here via this. Can I finish this? And then, and then we, can, we can talk. We as human beings are not abundantly available. We can really only be available to one person at one time. Yet God is abundantly available. He never hangs out the do not disturb sign. He never... He never goes offline. He's never too busy in order to be able to be found by his people. He's abundantly available. That is his status all the time. He never slumbers nor sleep. He's always available to his people. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. And I don't want you to misunderstand that. God is not playing some sort of divine cosmic game of hide and seek where you have to determine in a determined fashion, using all of your wit and skill, suss out where he is, seeking God, trying to find where God is hiding. God does not hide, okay? God is abundantly available. And those of us who know him and walk with him know that. We know that he's abundantly available. We know that there's a constant invitation to come before him, to come to his throne of grace and to seek help in time of need. But for anybody that's listening who does not or has not walked with God and you're tuning in because his word has brought you a little bit of comfort in, in recent weeks, I want you to know that you don't have to bend over backwards to seek God. You don't have to jump through a pile of hoops. You don't have to walk over hot coals. He is abundantly available. He is present to you right now in this moment. And why would you leave it another day before committing yourself to following him? You don't have to seek a God who is hiding. You're invited to seek a God who is abundantly available and is immediately ready to respond to those who cry unto him. The picture in verses 2 and 3 is a picture of complete chaos. 
It's like creation is falling apart again. Those mountains falling into the sea, the sea roaring. It's like we are, we are drifting back into chaos. But I know a God who out of chaos creates things. Let's look at the second section of the psalm. So that, that's section one and it ends off with a little sila. You know, go away and chew on that. Think about that for a while. The second section runs from verses four to seven. And, and starts off with this phrase, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. I want you to note the contrast because the psalmist has, has written this and he's very carefully left you in verse 3 thinking about um, surging waters about the oceans raging and foaming, a scene of absolute chaos. We've talked a lot in the past at table about the fact that, that for the ancient people, raging waters and seas were a picture of chaos and fear. They did not like the water. But in contrast to the raging waters of verses 2 and 3, We've got the, the opposite in verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. We'll come back later to that phrase, the Most High. God is within her. She will not fall. All right, think again. We've got uh, back in verse 2, the mountains fall. Verse 5, God is within his people, they will not fall. There is an intentional contrast going on there. God will help her at break of day. Nations in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That word fortress speaks of a high place, a high tower that people, again, would run to to find safety in a time of threat. You get this all through the Psalms, this idea of God being my stronghold, my strong tower, my refuge where I run to. There is a river. Now, there's a problem. There's not a river, okay? In Jerusalem, if you know any, any geography of Jerusalem, there's no river in Jerusalem. There never was a river in Jerusalem, and it's unlikely that there ever will be a physical river in Jerusalem. So what on earth is the psalmist talking about here when he says there is a river that is making people glad? Now, I like rivers, um, but this river makes people joyful. It makes them glad. It brings them peace as opposed to the raging waters that are all around them. So what is this river that, that the writer is talking about? Well, you'll get the river mentioned a couple other times in Scripture. You'll get it mentioned in Ezekiel 47, and you'll get it mentioned in Revelation 22. And there are other places. Jesus, as well, talks about rivers of living water flowing from us. But in Revelation 22, there's a river, and this is the river that I believe the, the songwriter is, is writing about, and it's also in Ezekiel 47, which we'll go to in a minute. But Revelation 22 says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of that city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. I hadn't intended to read just as much of that, but that's a chapter that once you start, it's hard to stop. Revelation 22 talks about a river. It's a river of life and it flows from the presence of God. And I think throughout the scripture, these rivers of life represent the Holy Spirit flowing from God to the people, giving them life. That's the river that our songwriter in Psalm 46 is talking about. It's also spoken about in Ezekiel 47 in an amazing vision 
Um, Ezekiel is a hard book to read. Some of the, the, the visions and the, the things that are in it can be difficult to understand, maybe even impossible in our time to understand the, the actual precise meaning of some of it. But in Ezekiel 47, there's a wonderful picture of a river that again, it's flowing from the temple. It's flowing from the presence of God. And it's a river that starts off ankle deep and then it becomes deep enough to swim in. And there's a phrase in verse 7, verse 8 of Ezekiel 47. It talks about this river entering the sea. And the sea that it's entering is the Dead Sea. Now, everything in the Dead Sea is dead. There's no life in it. It's full of salt. Nothing can live. But it says that when this river empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. And at the end of verse 9, everywhere the river flows, everything will live. So again, we have this picture of a river of life and it's flowing into a scene of death. But instead of the river being infected by the death the river flows into the sea of death and infects it with life and everything in the sea now lives and becomes teeming with life that's the river that we're talking about and though around the city of jerusalem there is a siege there are 185,000 soldiers who know how to kill people and kill them in a painful horrendous way They know how to take over a city. They have conquered the entire known world at that time. Within the city, there is a river that brings gladness. And that river is the presence of God. And church, if there's one thing we must cultivate in our lives at this time, it is the presence of God. Because I believe that when this plague ends, when it passes there will be a hunger for the presence of God like never before in the lifetime of anyone who is currently alive. There will be a desperation for the presence of God, a river that brings life and brings gladness in the midst of this threat. Church, don't drop the ball. We're not going back to the way things were before. We're not just going to hang out the business as usual sign on the door of the church. It's going to change. We need more than ever to be a people of the presence of God because when this ends, I believe there'll be people at the door. I don't just talk of our own church, but of the church globally, universally. There are going to be people at the door of the church saying, can we come with you because we've heard that God is with you. Zechariah 8.23, we need to be ready. We need to have the presence of God. And it says in verse 5, God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. At the break of day is the time when God works, when the most the the darkest last watch of the night is passing and dawn is coming. That's when God does his work. All right, that's when Jesus rose from the dead. That's when after the the children of Israel had walked through the Red Sea and come out the other side, it was at the break of day that the waters crashed back down on top of the Egyptian army and wiped them out. God does his great work at the break of day when the darkness is just starting to come to an end and dawn is coming. God will help. That's what the songwriter writes to the people, I believe, in the city of Jerusalem at this time of threat. The threat of death is all around them. And he says, God is here. God, you will not fall. God will help us at the break of day. Other nations are in uproar. Other kingdoms have fallen. Other cities, even in Judah, have fallen. But whenever God speaks, whenever his voice goes forth, the earth will melt. And then verse 7, we have the chorus that comes again at the end in verse 11. And the chorus is, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The writer then goes on in the last part of the psalm to look at the outcome for the wicked. Verse 8, come and see the works of the Lord. 
the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. That's the outcome that the songwriter says will take place for this enemy that has encamped around the people of God. And in verse 10, he says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. After Hezekiah brought the letter into the temple and led it before God and prayed about this whole situation, his prayer is worth reading sometime today if you get a chance, even in advance of our extra hour of prayer at three o'clock. But after he has prayed, led the letter before God, Isaiah the prophet comes to him and brings him a long word from the Lord. And at the end of it, in Isaiah 37, 35, God declares, I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. I will defend this city. And what happens then is an angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day while he was worshipping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, his sons cut him down with the sword and they escaped to the land of Ararat. That was the end of the great king Sennacherib and his army. I wonder what that scene was like just before the break of day, just before dawn, an angel of the Lord went through the Assyrian camp where the people in Jerusalem maybe tried to rest, maybe tried to sleep unsuccessfully. And this angel of the Lord went through the camp and the 185,000 to a man, every one of them dead. This is our God. This is the God whose presence makes glad the people of God. He is a mighty God. He makes wars to cease. Our prayer today will be that he will make this plague to cease. And before it ceases, I want God's people to really hear him in the midst of it and come out of it different. Different not content to just going back and doing what we did before, but coming out of it different and ready for what I believe will be a harvest. But this phrase, be still and know that I am God, this is a really popular verse. Get this on our, on our mugs and on our fridges and we have it written on our walls. It's a beautiful verse. It's a verse that we we use to, to just quieten our souls, to go to a place of calmness and solitude and to just ponder and reflect on God and who God is. And I think that's a right way to, to view the verse, but I'm going to throw a spanner in the works and say that I'm not sure that that is what the original intent was. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not trying to wreck your favorite verse. You need to be still. I need to be still. Two weeks of this lockdown, and I have not yet been still enough. The last three or four days have been very, very busy, and I need to work on being still. I need to work on just going upstairs and climbing into the armchair and sitting and being still and knowing and trusting God. So I'm not saying that the verse is not calling us to do that. But I just want you to think, who was the verse originally addressed to? Just read it in context again. Let me start from, from verse 9. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. We, we're reading about how God is making wars to cease. He's commanding wars to stop. 
He's breaking bows. He's shattering the weapons of warfare. He is burning shields. And immediately he speaks and he says, Be still. Be still. Who is he talking to? I know another person who says, Be still. And it's King Jesus. In Mark chapter 4, in verse 39, there's a storm. And Jesus gets up. His presence has been there all the time. His disciples are fearful at the threat that is all around them. And he gets up and he says, be still. And he's not talking to the disciples. He's talking to the storm. And in Psalm 46, I believe this is a verse that we can take both ways that we could take as God's word to us, telling us, be still, relax, trust me. But I also believe that God is speaking here to the Assyrian army. He's speaking to Sennacherib, this threatening king that has come with his psychological warfare against the people of God. He's speaking to those wars that he's mentioned in verse 9. He's speaking to the bow. He's speaking to the spear. He's speaking to the shields. And he's saying, enough, be still. Because that's all that God has to do to silence the threat of the enemy is to just say to it, be still. In fact, whenever Jesus says to the storm in, in Mark chapter 4, the, the Greek word that he uses is pretty harsh, and he uses it with demons as well. He says, shut up. <laughs> okay, kids, you're not allowed to tell each other to shut up, but if you're speaking to a storm or you're speaking to a demon, you can tell it to shut up, because Jesus did. Be still is a polite English translation of shut up. That's enough out of you. That's enough threats. That's enough raging waters. That's enough shaking mountains. That's enough bows and spears and shields. That's enough. Be still. I am God. I am God. Not you, Sennacherib. Not your armies. Be still. Every single one of you is going to be incredibly still. All 185,000 of you are going to be really still for a really long time because I am God. And the way I want to pray, or one of the ways I want to pray today at three o'clock is a prayer that the voice of God would ring out, be still in two levels to his people and to all who would turn to him, trust me. And that his voice would ring out and that that wretched virus would hear it, be still, enough, enough, die. Be still and know that I am God. The fact that this psalm does not have a specific background, I have pitched it in the context of, of this historical story of Sennacherib and his army, which a lot of scholars think is when it was written. But the fact that it's not attached exclusively to a specific historical background means every single person throughout history who wants to can take this psalm and apply its message in whatever it is that is disorienting us at this time. Some of you are just clean knackered because of the last couple of weeks, because of the readjustments you've had to make. Some of you are knackered because you work in the NHS and you go in there and you see disorientation. Please don't misunderstand me. It's not a criticism. It is just the fact that so many things are uncertain and so many things are changing and it's so difficult to lead and to administrate in these times, and you're tired because you work there. Some of you, you are, you are experiencing upheaval. You've been furloughed by your job, by your employer, and you don't know what's going to happen. And, and you, you, you can take this word from God, and you can say, God is my refuge, and he's my strength, and he's my abundantly available help in this time of trouble. 
If the psalm was strictly attached to one particular moment in history, there might be a temptation to look at it and say, well, I'm not in a city being surrounded by 185,000 bloodthirsty Assyrians, and therefore this does not apply to me. But it's not exclusively attached to that, and therefore every single one of you can take this. And I know some have been bereaved this week. And every single one of you, no matter what you are going through, you can take this psalm and you can change the R in verse 1 to my, my, for your situation. A couple of psalms earlier, Psalm 42 speaks of deep calling to deep. And that word deep is, is the chaos that existed before creation. And in this psalm, in, verse, in, in, chapter, in Psalm 46, we have read about creation in uproar again and in chaos again. But I want to assure you, anyone that's listening and because of, of what's going on or because of issues that have been going on long before this thing came along and you feel there's chaos and upheaval in your heart, it may be family issues, it may be mental health issues, it may be all sorts of destructive thinking patterns. And whenever I talk about mountains shaking and the sea roaring, you're thinking that's actually a pretty good description of where my mind is and where my heart is. I want you to know that in Genesis 1, it was out of that situation of chaos that the Word of God brought order and brought life and brought creation. And right now you're hearing the word of God. And anytime you want, you can open your Bible and you can hear the word of God. And you can listen to a preacher, you can hear the word of God. And in the, the, the chaos and upheaval that is in your heart because of whatever is going on in your life, that chaos is actually perfect resources for God to bring forth new creation. And he wants to make you a new creation. He wants to give you new life that you yourself know and experience that river that flows from his throne, from his temple, from his presence, and flows into your life and brings gladness even in the midst of turmoil. There's a book uh, on bipolar disorder called The Unquiet Mind. And some of you have an unquiet mind. And in the midst of that riotous, chaotic mind, there is a God who will speak to the things that bring chaos and say, you be still. And then he will speak to you and say, now you can be still as well. Do you get it? The command to be still is going in both directions to the things that threaten my people, to the things that come against them and bring death and uncertainty. Be still. And now to my people, because I've told that thing to shut up, I'm going to come to you and tell you to be still, to relax in the presence of God, even in the midst of turmoil. On the basis of this psalm, Martin Luther wrote a song called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A Mighty Fortress. And in case you think that Martin Luther was sitting in some uh, cushy armchair and everything was fine and there were no threats to him or his way of life, he wrote that song in the midst of a plague known as the Black Death. A Mighty Fortress is Our God. This is a psalm of defiant trust in the midst of turbulence. What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? Well, the very mountains are shaking. What are you trusting in? Is God your refuge? We're going to break bread. And as we do that, I want to jump from Psalm 46, verse 4, Go to, go to verse 4, and I just want to pick out one thing, and then I want to go to, to the book of Genesis. Psalm 46, verse 4, says, There is a river 
whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. The Most High. That's a phrase that Linda's been using a lot lately, this this concept of God being Most High. No matter what towering opposition appears to come against us, there is our God who is Most High. He is higher than everything else. It reminds us of Jesus who is seated in Ephesians in heavenly places. He is above everything. It reminds us of other Psalms where we read that God is seated above the flood. The chaos, he's up above it. The Most High God. In Hebrew, Most High is the the words El Elyon is the name for God Most High. And I want to go back to Genesis and look at the time where that phrase, El Elyon, God Most High, appears for the first time. It's in Genesis 14. And it's written after Abraham has fought a battle against five kings. And it says in verse 18 of Genesis 14, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. This is a really strange figure who we don't know an awful lot about, but the book of Hebrews speaks of him, and it really does look as if this was a a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, the Son of God, God himself showing up. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And there's that phrase for the first time in the Bible, I believe, El Elyon, God most high. He blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So you have this picture of of a battle-weary Abram being refreshed by this character, Melchizedek, who is a priest of God Most High, And he refreshes Abram by bringing him bread and wine. It's a theme that runs a thread throughout Scripture and is then grabbed by Jesus at the Last Supper. Bread and wine. The bread representing his body and the wine representing his blood. And it brought refreshment to Abram. It brought him into the presence of God and into a place of refreshing. And if your separation from from physical church in these days is preventing you from being able to take communion, I would urge you strongly, you need to take communion in your home. There is nothing that requires anyone to administer communion to you. You can do it on your own and you need to. Because Jesus said, do this in remembrance as me. And I don't want to turn around and say, no. (laughs) So we should be breaking bread in our homes. So let's just do that now. If you have the emblems ready, and if you don't, you you can do it later on, maybe with your family. But the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup and he gave it to them and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's poured out 
is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And again, that call to do this, to take this cup in remembrance of him, to never, ever drift away from the cross. So we thank you, Jesus, for a body given for us and for blood shed for us. And we thank you for forgiveness of sins. And I just pray now for anybody listening who needs to experience forgiveness of sins and who needs to have the certainty that they are forgiven, that the river of life that is the Holy Spirit would flow into them right now and that they would know that they are forgiven and that out of the chaos of their hearts, you would bring forth stillness and order and new creation in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. So that's us done. Thank you so much for tuning in, joining us. Uh, if, if anybody wants a, a phone call or a chat, if you've, if you've never made any contact with us before uh, and you just want to have a chat, you want a bit of encouragement and you want to hear a voice, you want somebody to pray with you, please drop us a line on, on Facebook and let us know. Um, God bless you all, to, to all you tablers out there. I miss you so much. I really do. Um, we as a family desperately miss every one of you. Um, and we long for the day that we'll be back together and that we will defiantly raise a hallelujah in this place uh, against an enemy overcome, an enemy defeated. And I urge you, church, once again, seek God in these days. Know him in a way you've never known him before. Be filled with the Holy Ghost and be ready for a harvest. Be ready to disciple new believers. Be ready for people to come to the door and say, can we come with you because we've heard that God is with you. God bless you all, and I'll connect with you during the week through the mighty Zoom. Amen. <clears throat>